Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're finally fresh out of contests this week, and light on other news, too, except to let you know that, over the next two weeks, we'll be finally rounding out the year with the remaining stories from this year's Stoker Awards. Eligible authors for the upcoming awards are madly sharing their stories far and wide right now, with the hopes of making the ballot but we'll be taking the next two episodes to showcase a couple more runners-up and winners from earlier this year. So, stay tuned for that. There are some great tales. Other than that, I don't have much to share. Support us on Patreon, give some Tales to Terrify merch to your loved ones this holiday, all the good stuff you're used to me saying in the intro by now. But most of all, Get tucked in nice and tight and cozy as we dive in to some chilling fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Mariska Pichette, who we also heard from last week. Mariska Pichette writes about monsters, magic, and what mysteries lurk in the Massachusetts woods. More of her work appears in audio on Pseudopod, the No Sleep Podcast, and Alternative Stories podcast. She has work in print in Strange Horizons, Fireside Magazine, Apparition Lit, and Uncharted Magazine, among others. You can find her on Twitter as at Mariska Pichette. 
children of the night. Join me for Mariska Pichette's The Tale, first published in Wild Blood Press, October 2020. There is a demon trapped in the car in front of me. Driving down the winding road of 116, streetlights illuminate the beige sedan in bursts. Orange light creates a visual Doppler effect, rising and falling as the sedan slides through. At first I thought there was a strap trapped between the trunk lid and its latch. The breeze sent it spinning erratically, snapping against the back of the sedan. The trunk is not quite closed bobbing up and down with every pothole, every frost heave. Passing under another headlight, I saw the tip. Not a strap at all. A tail. The car pulls into a gas station and, through either curiosity or stupidity, I follow. There's no law against it, but I hate seeing the thing suffer. When the sedan's driver, a bearded man with a sword strapped to his back, goes inside the station to pay for his pump, I get out of my car and approach his. The demon lashes the night air with its tail. The tip of its tail is the dangerous part. If it strikes me, it can cut deep. And when a demon smells blood, the game changes. The catcher must have gotten this one from the woods. Hunters didn't like demons interfering with their catchers, materialising at the first whiff of a kill. A deer could be reduced to bones in as little as 20 minutes if a demon was in the vicinity. I don't like hunters. Demon catchers aren't much better. I give the trunk lid an experimental tug. Something is holding it down, though it's not latched. I glance towards the gas station building. The demon catcher is at the cashier. I crouch down, and the tail sweeps up past my face, momentarily freezing me. The sharp tip narrowly misses my cheek. I stay frozen as his tail twitches a couple more times, then lowers. Exhaling, I peer through the crack where the lid doesn't quite meet the base. Illuminated in the trunk's automatic light, the demon lies curled in a net of metal mesh, red eyes blinking almost too fast for me to follow. Its inner eyelid flashes back and forth, a white shudder over old film. Calm down, I whisper, as if the thing could understand. I try to imagine it as a trapped squirrel, or something else harmless. My heart pulses in my chest. Why am I doing this? What am I doing? Demons are pests, but they don't deserve what the catchers do to them. Some are killed, others are changed. The demon hisses as I slide my fingers into the trunk. A bungee cord is looped through the trunk's latch to keep the trunk from springing open. I can feel the tension in the elastic. Across the lot, the door to the gas station slides open. 
panic surges through me. The demon flicks its tail and I jerk my head away, only vaguely aware of how close it was to cutting me. What will the catcher do if he finds me? There are laws against releasing demons where people live, not to mention breaking into a car that's not my own. Footsteps approaching. I should leave, but I don't. Instead, I yank down on the bungee cord, pinching my wrists and the demon's tail together. My fingers slide along the cord as I try to unhook it. Just a few inches from my face, the demon spits, filling my nose with the scent of sulfur. What? The catcher grabs my shoulder, just as the tension in the bungee cord crumbles. He pulls me back. The trunk springs open. I hold up my hands and feel the heat of blood running down them as I stumble against the gas pump. The demon catcher curses, at me or at the demon, I'm not sure, and draws his sword. A wet sound. His sword falls onto the pavement. My hands sting from where the demon's tail sliced across my palms. The demon catcher has his hands around his throat. Blood seeps between his fingers. His eyes are wild as he looks at me, face glowing in the fluorescent gas station lights. He drops to his knees. On the ground in front of him lies his sword, and next to it, the demon's severed tail. Blood. Blood. I stand frozen, staring at the trunk now fully open. The demon will smell all the blood. I should run back to my car, drive away. I edge forward, peering into the blood-stained trunk. The bungee cord lies coiled, one end still hooked to the latch at the trunk's base. I look for the demon in its net. The trunk is empty, aside from a tire iron and a dirty rag. Blood drips from my fingertips. Did it flee? I've never heard of a demon leaving fresh blood. I look down at the tail. Lying on the cracked pavement, it twitches. I don't know what compels me to reach down. When I pick it up, slick and warm, it curls around my wrist, squeezing. I let go, but it stays, wrapped tight as a brace. The tail's point lies flat in my palm. I run my thumb over it, smooth like fingernails. As I drive home, I keep glancing in the rearview mirror. I'm looking for headlights. Was the demon catcher's death my fault? Did the gas station attendant see anything? Call the police? My hands bleed onto the steering wheel. Blood drips down onto my lap. The demon tail stays wrapped around my wrist. I hardly notice the pressure anymore. When I look in the mirror, I think I can see an ambulance. But it's only my eyes, glowing red in the dark. That was Mariska Pichette's The Tale, as read by James Barnett. James Barnett, a.k.a. Jimmy Horrors, is the creator-slash-host-slash-producer of the Night's End podcast. When he's not banging his head against the monitor while editing audio, he scribbles horror stories. 
check him out at jamesbarnettauthor.com or the Night's End Podcast at nightsendpodcast.com. The Night's End Podcast is a short story podcast. With a focus on dark speculative fiction, it hopes to leave you wishing for the night's end before each story is through. Thank you, James. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second tale tonight comes from L.S. Johnson. L.S. Johnson lives in California with a spouse, a cat, and numerous goldfish. She is the author of the Chase and Daniels Quartet of Gothic novellas and over 40 short stories. Her first collection, Vacua Magia, won the North Street Book Prize and was a finalist for the World Fantasy Award. Her second collection, Rare Birds, was an IPPY medalist. Her vampire serial, Prima Materia, is happening now. Find her online at traversingz.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to L.S. Johnson's A Harvest Fit for Monsters, first published in Nightscript 4. Aileen swung the axe up and down, cursing her tiring arms. The blade slid a little further into the upright log. Sweat ran into her eyes and made her armpits slick. 
She could have gone to town to arrange for some kind of firewood. A day's walking, but easier than the axe. Instinctively, though, she knew that the day she could no longer cut her own wood would be a turning point, from which there was no coming back. Besides, there was hardly anyone in town now, hardly anyone anywhere. It was a country of old women and little children. All their strength and vigor was rotting in the fields, in the swaths of land lapping at that single contested border, just a line on the maps of madmen. Or so she thought when she reflected on her circumstances, which she hardly did any more. She had buried self-reflection with her husband and children, along with a myriad of emotions, happiness, kindness, that particular sorrow that cleanses the spirit. Her husband had been mortally wounded in the volunteer corps of those too old to serve and too inflamed to know better. Her daughter had fallen in the fields not five miles from where Aileen stood. Her son had been killed in a camp accident that she knew was no accident. Once she heard the news of her son's death, she had waited for them to come for her because of the things he had described in his letter. She had even put her house in order, packed a suitcase, chosen a dress to wear for her execution. But the only thing that had arrived was his battered trunk appearing on her doorstep one morning like discarded refuse, and that had only angered her more, that the terrible things her son had described mattered so little. In the end, it wasn't even worth the effort to kill her. Until now. She let the axe slip to the ground as she watched the figure walk towards her, erect and purposeful the gray of his uniform stark against the brown fields. Only the one, though, and on foot. She waited long enough for any vehicles to appear, and then relaxed a little. It still happened from time to time that a soldier would pass through, searching for a way back to the world they remembered. So many landmarks had been raised. They were often stunned as she gently placed them. Yes, these were the outskirts of town. Yes, this road was the market road. Yes, there used to be four great windmills. Years ago, the windmills. Years of war in between, and nearly a year of peace now. And still they came. Aileen caught up the axe and walked back to the house, wiping her hands on her shirt tails. They would want water, and perhaps supper. At first, he was just a shadow in the doorway, made looming and shapeless by the cloth rucksack he carried. She beckoned him inside, the glass of water in her hand. He stepped into the filtered sunlight, and the glass fell, shattering between them. I'm not him, he gasped, holding up his hands. I swear, I'm not him. Still, Aileen could not speak for gaping at him, her heart hammering in her chest, 
a face she had seen only in grainy print, now suddenly alive before her. The general, her son's general. The papers had called him savior, then butcher. Her son had called him the monster. I'm a cousin, nothing more, just a distant cousin, the man cried, cringing much as she was. I had nothing to do with him. I cursed the day he was born. Please believe me. I have papers. I can prove it. You must believe me. I was merely a soldier. I had no part in his crimes. Please. He took a step backwards. I just want to go home, he said in a smaller voice. She felt behind herself, gripped at the back of a chair to keep upright, trying to understand. They had never found him. They had believed him killed in the last terrible push to reclaim the capital. A cousin? She tried to superimpose the news photos atop the face before her. Certainly he was more gaunt, older, but so was everyone. I'll go, he said. I don't wish to upset you. He managed a lopsided smile. This accursed face, he added. Wait. She shook herself. Show me your papers. He hesitated, wary, then reached carefully into his breast pocket and drew forth a worn booklet. He had to extend his arm fully to reach her. The papers pinched in his trembling fingertips. She took them with a decisive flick of her wrist that made him flinch. Now that the shock had worn off, she could think more clearly. How could he have made it so far if he was the monster? Ever since the treaty was signed, they had scrutinized everyone, searching for the last of his conspirators. Impossible that he should have come so far to find himself on her doorstep of all places, as abandoned as her son's trunk had been. The name was different. The photo showed a healthier version of the man before her, one that looked nothing like her recollection of the monster. She had seen many false papers over the years. These looked official. You must be thirsty, she said handing the booklet back to him and gesturing to her little table. I've had enough mistrust for this life, haven't you? At that, his shoulders sagged. More than enough, he agreed. With an odd little bow, he crossed the room to the table, sitting down with a sigh and letting his rucksack slide to the floor. The shape of him, how he nearly banged into things, it reminded her of her children's friends, awkward in their adult bodies, even as they prepared to fight adult battles. Her throat closed for a moment, though she had thought herself done with crying over the past. Thank you, he said, and again when she set a fresh glass before him, thank you. With a nod, she set about sweeping up, watching him surreptitiously as she tidied the mess away. He swallowed thirstily, his stubbled throat flexing. A large, ugly scar knotted the tissue beneath his left earlobe, running down his neck 
to disappear under his collar. A close call. She had seen worse, but she could well imagine the fear and pain from coming so close to dying. You have family nearby? she asked. An old friend. He wiped his mouth on his sleeve, then flushed. I apologize. My manners. You've had more important things to worry about. But she laid a napkin before him and refilled his glass, then put the last of her loaf before him as well. He tore into it voraciously. Just another man. It could easily have been her son or her husband before her. I didn't think there was grain still, he said, around mouthfuls. Very little, she sat across from him. Everything is poisoned, but they don't know why. Some say it's chemicals. Some say it's all the metal in the ground. But I think it's the blood. At his startled look, she gestured to the window. A battle was waged here. We buried so many. We were shoveling for days, and all that blood went into the dirt. And isn't that a kind of poison? So much slaughter? She heard her own voice, loud and shrill, and held up a hand. I'm sorry. I've been alone too long. He had paused in his eating. It must be hard, he said, to do everything by yourself at your age. We've all learned to do, she replied, those of us that are left. He was nodding even as he pushed more of her bread into his mouth. Still, her gaze kept returning to his scar. There was something about it, something that tugged at her, but for the life of her she could not remember what. He went to rest, though he kept insisting he would be on his way by sundown, and no matter what, he would repay her for her kindness as soon as he reached his friend's farm. Despite his exhaustion, it was some time before she heard the creak of the narrow bed frame, and she could not shake the sense that he too was listening to her movements. Oh, she had been alone too long. She should have been starting their supper, should have been carving up her precious store of root vegetables and scouring the landscape for any last hints of green. Instead, she found herself sitting on the bench at the back of the house, where she used to pluck fowl and clean vegetables. The scar bothered her. Why did it bother her? There was something about it. Aileen had learned in the last few years that when she needed to think of something, the trick was to think of something else. So she turned over in her mind the old problem of how to grow vegetables again. A raised bed with some kind of barrier beneath? How small could it be and still sustain her? Who might have good soil that perhaps she could barter for? She still had a little gold. And then she thought of her son's letter. The box had once contained her prayer book, a useless tome, for what had their prayers brought them save death? Only when Aileen received the letter had she understood what prayer really was, the decision-making of the choiceless, a last pretense that you had any power in a mad world. Slowly, reverently, she lifted the lid on the box and laid it aside. 
letting her fingers brush the yellowed papers within. Five dense, bristling pages. More than he had written in his life, she knew, for had she not taught him his letters? Leaning over him at the table, watching him struggle to trace the words she had painstakingly written over and over, five pages that she kept in the box, the prayer book discarded long ago, kept carefully flat and sealed away, for after the third reading she had felt something change in herself, as if the words had somehow written themselves into her very blood. All her boy's pain, all that he had done, first blindly, then with a terrible understanding. All the suffering caused for one man's madness. She took the letter out and scanned it, phrases echoing with memory. He told us to cut out their tongues lest they report us. Afterwards I found her corpse and the basket only held a doll. Gutting them would be the only message they understood. Told me I had to, or he would kill her and her sister both. Until at last she found what she was looking for. Last night he had a woman brought to us. He said she was a traitor and we had to know what she told them. She was barely grown. He brought out his tools, and she started screaming. I tried to reason with him, but he turned on me, and the others seized me, and he said that even if the girl was innocent, she could serve his purpose. She must have seized the knife while he spoke to me. When he turned back to her, she tried to cut his throat, but though she caught him under the ear, she could not finish the blow. Oh, mother, when they were done with her, you could not tell her from a butcher's scraps, and all I could do was watch. Please understand that this is why I must stop him no matter the price. So many already mimic his behavior and speak his words. I must stop him before he makes monsters of us all. Aileen read it through twice before putting it away. The scarring beneath his ear. Oh, it was too similar to be coincidence. Not the clean line of a knife wound. But wouldn't he go to great lengths to mask such a distinguishing mark? The house answered her with silence. She thought, I should kill him now. She thought, I must be sure. And then she went outside once more catching up her shovel as she strode out into the fields. He came into the main room just as she was dusting the pot with a last precious pinch of spice. Though he rubbed his face as if newly awakened, his uniform was barely wrinkled. That smells magnificent, he said. She made herself smile at him. It's merely bone broth, but it will nourish. Carefully she ladled out the steaming liquid, making sure to catch the small pieces of bone, the slivers of parsnips and onions. When she put his bowl before him, he nearly dove in, his eyes focused on the steaming surface. 
She took her time filling her own bowl, took her time crossing the room, her every gesture that of a tired old woman. At last, she sat in her chair and said, You don't have to wait for me. For a time, there was only the sound of his enthusiastic slurping, the vigor with which he sucked at the bones, piling them beside his bowl. She made as if to sip her own, watching him. At last, he became aware of her scrutiny. You're not hungry, he asked, his expression changing to wariness again. I have little appetite at my age, she demurred. Still, his unease persisted. She made herself take a mouthful and visibly swallow. She had vowed never again, and never again after that. But there had been so little for so long. Before he makes monsters of us all. He relaxed as he watched her drink and leaned back with a contented sigh. That is the best soup I've had in some time, he said. Could I possibly lure you to my friend's house? He's a good man, not much younger than you. I had a husband, she replied. I don't want another. Children? A son and a daughter, both lost to the war. He looked truly abashed, and her resolve wavered. My apologies, that was thoughtless of me. It's just sitting here feels so normal, as if nothing has happened. Some of us will never have such moments. She raised the bowl to her mouth, pretending to drink again. This is why I must stop him no matter the price. Well, we know who's to blame, eh? He smiled at her. But we showed them who is the greater. They'll never dare to assault us again. I'm not sure there's anyone left to assault us. She rose and carried the bowls to the sink. So you enjoyed the broth? As I said, it's one of the tastiest meals I've had in many days. Clever of you to keep the bones of your game. Was there a sly tone creeping into his voice? Another thing you learned to do, or country wisdom? There hasn't been game here in years. She stared into the sink where the axe lay, and beside it the bullets she had removed from the pistol in his rucksack. From a butcher? I'm honored it must have cost a fortune. I was standing here when it started. She watched his reflection in the window glass, coiling and uncoiling her fingers around the axe handle. The grain was waist-high. It looked like they were floating in it. Thousands of soldiers, so dirty and ragged you could barely tell ours from theirs. They had run out of ammunition. It was knives, swords, even rocks. It was the most brutal sight I had ever beheld. His reflection shrugged. It's been terrible, especially this last year. But war is always terrible. We must put the past behind us now and focus on rebuilding. I learned my daughter was among them somewhere, and I took an axe and ran out to find her. She realized she had stopped speaking to him. Who was she speaking to? It's easy to kill when you can't really see them, when they're just blurs, howling like animals. That was the first thing I learned to do, General. 
Perhaps you of all people can appreciate such a lesson. He straightened in his chair. I told you, I'm not him. His hands suddenly hidden. Afterwards, there was nothing in the field but bodies. I told myself I would starve before I touched them. Yet you cannot make a broth without bones. She laughed softly. No more grain, no more animals. But we have plenty of bones, General, a harvest fit for monsters. The click of the pistol made her look over her shoulder. I think we've had a misunderstanding, he said, taking steady aim at her. You have been alone too long, Grandmother. I am going to leave now. Please don't make me use this. Is that what you tell yourself about the girl who cut you? Aileen touched the flesh below her own ear, mirroring his scarring. It was a misunderstanding. What about the soldiers you ordered gutted after their surrender? The children you swore were carrying ammunition to the front line? My son was one of your lieutenants, General, and he told me everything. He squeezed the trigger, but there was only an empty click. Cursing, he lurched to his feet and reached for his rucksack. Aileen turned completely, swinging the axe out and wide, crossing the room as fast as she could. She felt strong, as strong as she had in the fields that night. She could already feel the blade driving into his flesh. Stop him before... Her feet tangled. She twisted her ankle, and then she was hurtling against the table, the edge winding her as it drove into her belly. The axe caught him in the chest, knocking him backwards as the handle shot out of her grasp. Blood splashed her face. For a moment she lay gasping atop the table, her hand burning, every wet drop on her skin scalding hot. When she eased herself upright, jagged pain radiated from her shoulders, and she tasted bile. A hand seized her ankle and yanked it forward. Her hip cracked against the table as she fell again. She kicked wildly until the hand released her and then scuttled out of reach, pressing her back against the wall as, wheezing, she tried to slow her racing heart. The monster was curled on his side, trying fruitlessly to grasp the blood-slicked handle. His hands and chest were drenched, half his face painted red. More blood pooled around him, soaking into her worn rag carpet. A new thing learned, what it meant to kill a man at close quarters and in daylight. Watching his mounting terror, smelling his failing body. That her children had each done this, had experienced this moment at such a young age. Oh, her grief swelled as it had not done for months, tightening her throat and stinging her eyes. She clenched them shut, pummeling her sorrow back into the depths of her belly. And when she opened her eyes again, the monster was staring at her. Not, he wheezed, more breath than sound. Not him. Some of us had no choice, she cried. 
her voice loud and harsh. Some of us could only be what you made us. She crawled forward. We learned to do, General. We learned to kill with our hands and eat corpse meat like vultures. We did terrible things. My children did terrible things. You made us all monsters. But she was shouting at a corpse. She dragged him into the fields, step by ponderous step, struggling to hold armpits sticky with blood. By the time she dropped him into a weedy patch, she was shaking with exhaustion, every step a cacophony of pain. She could barely see her house for the gloom of twilight as she stumbled back, leaving both corpse and axe in the wilted grass. In the morning, everything could wait until the morning. Inside were the meaty odors of soup and blood. Flies hovered over the stained floorboards. His splattered rucksack had been kicked in a corner. The rug would have to be burned. The floor bleached and scrubbed. It was all she could do to latch the doors and windows and fall into bed. Aileen was wading through the darkened fields, the grass taller than her waist. Everywhere was movement. Everywhere she could hear panicked breathing, smell a rank miasma of sweat and blood and urine that blew over her in gusts. The general rose up before her, his face photo-gray, robust in the moonlight, and his jacket gleaming with metals. She swung the axe, cutting deep into the scar tissue, but she couldn't complete the blow. When she pulled the blade back, his head flopped to one side, revealing black, muddy soil beneath. Slowly he crumbled before her, and the axe in her hands was not wood and metal, but a clay that cracked in her fist. Everything's poisoned her husband rasped in her ear, the deathbed voice that she had learned not to cringe at. Even us, we're sick inside now. Nothing good will ever grow here again, Aileen. Best to raise it all. She spooned up soup to silence him. She wasn't ready to listen to him. She would never be ready. Only the soup was heavy, sludgy and she realized she was feeding him mud, and it smelled delicious. She awoke, cotton-mouthed and disoriented, inhaling over and over the smells of dirt and broth and blood, ears ringing with an incoherent cry. Her arm reached for the side of the bed, and she mewled aloud at its emptiness. Only then did she see the stains on her hands and arms, she sat up, sheets pooling around her waist, and she saw that she had gone to bed without washing. Past the window, cawing birds circled over the dried grasses. A crushed trail led back to her house as clearly as a line on a map. Still, she felt the dream clinging to her. What were the odds that he would come here, to this house? Had she not once also believed truly believed that she had seen her daughter walk up the road and into the house, 
had run back from the field with racing heart and tears in her eyes, only to find it empty. Slowly, stiffly, Aileen got out of bed, shaking and pinching herself, the chill in the air setting her skin alight. Outside, the birds rose and dropped, jostling for access, as they had after the battle, clouds of birds swarming down upon the corpses. But they had drifted away as the land withered and died. Where had these come from, these birds? How far had the smell of dead flesh carried? How starved were they to cross acres of decay? She felt a strange pang, a mixture of grief and sympathy for these scrawny creatures with their jagged wings, creatures she had once despised. Not him. But it could only have been the monster. The likeness, his weak denials, impossible that he could be anything but. Her renewed certainty made her first steps out of her bedroom bearable, kept her steady when she saw the great stain on the floor, the spray dotting the walls. She dragged the blood-stiff rucksack onto the table and began pulling out its contents, all the things she had barely noticed when searching it for weapons. A change of clothes, an empty flask, dried meat wrapped in a kerchief, a book of prayer, a fancier version of the one she had thrown away, with many phrases underlined. May I never take the blessing of freedom for granted. I am enclosed by wickedness. Give me victory over the corrupt. It is better to trust in the gods than mortal leaders. She fanned the pages searching for what? Some phrase that would confirm it all? That would ease that small nagging doubt? When a photograph fell out, Three figures in all, an older woman flanked by two young men, all clearly related, and the men bore the mark of him, a family. Even monsters, it seemed, had people who loved them, people who would perhaps do to her what she had done to him. Did they miss him? Were they waiting for him? Did they see him walking up to the door full of life, only to find he was never there? Aileen waited to feel sympathy for this woman like herself, who had perhaps lost children as well as her husband now. But while she could feel something for the birds eating his corpse, she could feel nothing for the woman who had shared his bed. And what did it matter? He was dead. It was done. Just another corpse among thousands. As she put aside the rucksack, however, she heard the sound of a motor in the distance, not the stuttering engines of one of the dilapidated vehicles from town. This one was a steady, well-maintained purr. Aileen looked at the stained floor and walls, her own filthy body, so lost in her reverie, and now there was no time. A swift, fleeting panic ran through her. She must concoct a plausible story perhaps a third party who had followed him and attacked him in the night. But as swiftly as it began, the panic faded, 
and she merely went to the sink. She washed her hands and face and combed her hair. She checked the buttons on her dress, that there were no unsightly gaps. A turning point when you no longer cared enough to dissemble. A point from which there was no coming back. Nothing good will ever grow here again, Aileen. The vehicle turned out to be an official-looking little truck. It stopped at her door. The two soldiers that came out had ribbons on their jackets and carried sidearms, but they flushed like schoolboys when she opened the door. So young. As young as her own had been when they first left, before they understood what they were giving themselves over to. Very sorry to intrude, one said, holding up a photo. We're looking for this man. The gaunt man from her table stared at her clad only in a thin, sleeveless shirt. The scarring she saw now extended over his shoulder and down his chest, like it had been splashed onto him. In black and white the resemblance was even stronger, but now the tiniest differences leapt out at her. The thinness of his lips. Hadn't the general's mouth been fuller, kinder, was the anger in the staring eyes from being captured or from being mistaken for another? Was the scarring a poor attempt to mar the original cut or a terrible coincidence? This man is wanted for questioning regarding his wartime activities, the other soldier continued, clearly reciting. All participants will be held accountable. Every citizen is expected to help or suffer the consequences of collaboration. The taste of the broth came back to her, the familiarity of it. Were they speaking of the general? Had they been ordered to vagueness? Her feet were still grimy with blood and dirt, or perhaps they did not know who they hunted. We're sick inside now. Nothing good will ever grow here again, Aileen. He's in the back, she said. They blinked in astonishment, hands dropping to their holsters. One gestured for her to come out, but she only smiled wearily at him. He's in the field, she corrected. He'll give you no trouble. The soldiers exchanged a look. Then they ran around the house, pistols drawn. She watched them run the early morning light glinting off their helmets, and for a moment they were her son and his friends, wrestling and mock-fighting in the thick, waving wheat. Best to raise it all. She took a bowl of water and cloth into the bedroom and washed thoroughly, then put on her most handsome dress. Everything was poisoned, and perhaps it had been for longer than she had realized. How quickly had her daughter enlisted, with her husband's encouragement? How had Aileen struggled to keep her son home for one last precious year, despite his anguish at being kept from the fighting? All of them so eager to kill, even her husband in his old age, even herself. She had never unpacked the suitcase she had prepared after her son's letter came. Now she dusted it and placed it by the door. In the field she could hear the soldiers arguing, probably about what to do. 
it could only be him. But to send two boys to find the most fearsome of their leaders? It could only be him. When at last one came back inside, he took off his helmet, but he also kept his pistol half-raised, as if he wasn't sure whether to beg her pardon or shoot her. Who else was here yesterday? he asked, a hint of pleading in his voice. No one, she said, then before he could reply. It is him, isn't it, the monster? He just looked at her blankly. The woman in the photograph, the grown sons. You could not tell her from a butcher's scraps. It's just that everything is poisoned now, she said. You, me, the very earth we stand on, and the things we've done. At his growing unease, she leaned over and patted his arm. Not you, of course, she amended. The soldier glanced over his shoulder at his fellow who had appeared in the doorway. The latter made a little go-on gesture. Ma'am, he said carefully, turning back to her, I'm very sorry to say I must arrest you. Of course you must, she patted his arm again. Only, could you bring me back here after, to the fields? The birds will be so hungry. She picked up the case and slipped her shoes on, then looked from one to the other. It was him, wasn't it? Of course you cannot say, but it was him. I'm certain of it. I learned to do, after all. A monster, just like he was. That was L.S. Johnson's A Harvest Fit for Monsters, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. 
you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we recite the ancient rites for more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volur xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.